Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Man, Brett must have a seriously efficient house because I paid a whole lot more than 100 or 150 for my power bill. Are, are you with me on that? Or maybe I just like it cold, but whatever the case, I paid a lot more than that. And that amount of money for paper products, you people use some paper. That's, that's, you're wiped out. Well, it's great that you're here. I mean, I'm looking out and seeing, uh, you know, one of the bigger crowds we've had in a while. Welcome back to church. Glad you're here. And it's just thrilling to get back into the mix. This has been a great weekend. And so I'm full of energy, a little tired. We had our deacon retreat this weekend, but just full of life and energy from uh, being around some great leaders. Now, if you didn't get a chance to be here last week or to watch last week's sermon, I'm going to ask you to go back and check it out because it will be online for some time. And it's really important that you grab these two together because I'm talking about a whole in parts, in two parts. And last week I introduced to you this idea of having to recalibrate, or at least for me, to recalibrate my spiritual life, to recalibrate my leadership, Uh, to recalibrate in so many ways and to get back out ahead of the curve. And I introduced the idea to you, and some of you have talked with me about what this means this week, that we are a startup. I mean, everything after COVID is a startup. It's it's crazy that this is true, but, but it is. I told my staff at the beginning of COVID, I said, listen, folks, you need to understand this is going to last at least a year, maybe two. It was even longer than I thought it would be. And when this is over, the hard work will really begin. I said to them, this will be difficult to hold our congregation during COVID together and to do what we do. But trust me, coming out on the other side will be 50 times harder. Not a single staff person, I think, has not said to me since that reopening time a few months ago, boy, was that ever true. But they're ready. They're charged up and they're ready to go. When I hear many of my friends say, my staff's completely burned out. We don't know where to go or what to do. That's not what I'm hearing from our team because during COVID, we talked about what it would mean to be a startup. We've been using this language for a couple of years. It just took me a while to catch up with my words, to be honest with you. Now, I did a lot of reading in the last uh, few months, and one of the things that I did reading on is what it means to start something new. Intriguingly, Chris Clifford and I, and some others too, but we have a lot in common in some ways. We grew up in similar parts of the state of the Commonwealth of Virginia. We, we came from similar backgrounds in, in some ways. Uh, we both had parents who were in ministry, uh, so we thought early and often about what it meant to serve the church and be part of the church, though I don't think Chris got away from it as far as I did for a while before I came back. Both of us did student ministry, which I think actually shapes you. I, I think you become a really different pastor when you've been on a staff and you've been a student pastor. Both of us did that. And both of us, coming out of our training, thought that we would start new churches, I mean, in my era as in his, the really exciting thing to do was to start a new congregation. We both thought we would. It seemed really appealing and attractive because when you grow up in the church, you know the church has just a little bit of baggage sometimes, and you don't want to tow that baggage around from place to place. So you think to yourself wrongly, you think to yourself that if you start something new, you won't have to deal with any of that. Of course, what you don't probably recognize, and I know this now, because I have a lot of good friends who've started churches, some successfully, some not. And what I've learned from them is that after about two weeks, you got baggage too, because you got human beings. My grandfather used to say the church would be, he was a pastor, the church would be a wonderful place were it not for people. And then he'd pause for a second and say, of course, if it weren't for people, there'd be no point in the church. It's a a catch-22, but it's also a beautiful dilemma. It's a magnificent dilemma to learn how to love and serve real people because we are all real people. We are all who we are. Now, when I looked at startups, I I found that there is actually a a model for how you start almost anything. And this could help you. If any of you want to start something new, I've got a library full of books, so you're welcome to borrow them. And there's a common way of doing this that that begins with, with starting 
looking into the future. And I love one of the questions that's asked in this. So I'm just going to pick out a few of these elements, not all of them. It, it, by the way, gets eventually to getting a thousand people who are following what you do and then growing, catch this, 5% a week, 5% a week. Let me say that again, 5% a week. Now, have you ever been part of a church that was growing 5% a week? Because I have for a period of time. And there have been periods of time in my 20 years here where we saw 5% growth in a week. Not consistently, but there have been these eras of fast, dynamic growth. And then if you're going to be successful as a startup, you've got to continue on a growth trajectory for at least four years. Now, I, I don't think that, that we can say that we are exactly starting something new. We have a lot more resources, a, a lot more to work with than somebody who's starting from nothing. But the truth is, if we are a startup, that's the trajectory we're looking for. We're looking for a prolonged period of growth, and that growth would come from reaching people who do not know Jesus with the gospel and baptizing them and welcoming them into a really healthy, magnificent, wonderful church, a place I want to be, and I I pray a place that you want to be as well. But when I look at these elements of startup, what does it mean to live in the future? Now, now how can you possibly live in the future? I mean, in many ways, we say we only are capable of living in the moment or living in the day. In fact, I'd say in some ways that's a virtue, the capacity to be able to live in the moment and live in the day. But if you're going to start something new, you somehow have to get out ahead of the wave and you've got to live in the future. And that should be more possible for Christians and the church of Jesus Christ than for anyone else on the face of the earth because our God, listen carefully, knows the future. Not only does he know it, but he dictates and plans it. And not only that, but he prepares his people to occupy that future. And he leads them one step at a time into a future that belongs to him. So join me in praying that the God of the future will show us enough of the future that we understand how to occupy that promised land. I love the question that any startup is supposed to ask. So anybody who wants to ask something should ask, what is missing in the world? Would you just ask that question to the person next to you? Just ask them, what's missing in the world? Now, you get to give me the Sunday school answer today. You know what a Sunday school answer is? You know, like, do you understand what this is? There's an answer. In Sunday school, there's a safe answer always, okay? And in in our case, it's not only the safe answer, it's the right answer. I understand Scripture. I understand God's plan for the world. I understand everything that He's been up to. I understand the incarnation. I understand the gospel of Jesus. I understand the cross. I understand the resurrection. I understand the birth of the church. I understand the Holy Spirit. I understand the movement of God. And so when I ask the question, what is missing in the world? No matter what news item I'm reading, no matter what development I'm seeing, I ask the question, what is missing in the world? The answer is, very good. You guys get an A for the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Let's face it. If everyone were truly a follower of Jesus Christ, if they actually lived out his ideals, his words, if they were made new through the resurrection, none of the war None of the brokenness, none of the famine that exists would occur. The reality is that everything that is broken in the world has been broken by us because we are broken, and only one thing can make us whole, and that is Jesus and his love. It's very simple. It's that simple. And if we know that is the answer, and we know that we have that answer, We know it was the answer in the past. We know it is in the moment, and we know it will be in the future until Jesus comes again, until a new heaven and a new earth is created. Until that time, we know we have the answer. Who would possibly have the answer to all the world's dilemmas and not provide it with passion? Who would not be bold about offering that answer? Who would not love the world enough to say, listen, we know Jesus And if you know him too, it can change everything about the trajectory of your future. So what's missing in the world? It's Jesus. And what did Jesus establish as the front line, as the the wave 
to share his gospel around the world? And the answer is the church. Last week I taught you or reminded you that he founded it on the rock of paganism, right in the center of a broken world, and said the gates of hell will not prevail against this because of your faith, because you know the answer. Now, of course, that requires number three, and there are all these steps on here, but here's another one, which is, this is really simple, but if you want to start something, let everyone know. It's, it's a good idea if you have a product to let people know that you have it. By the way, one of the follow-ups to that is check and see if people are also letting everyone know. How many of you have started traveling again? You traveling again? I mean, uh, I, I'd forgotten how exhausting it is. Elijah, I don't know how you do it, man. I, I don't, Elijah's like, he's been, he's circumnavigated the world in the last little while, and, and he loves to go to war zones. I've been watching him. So uh, he loves to do things that are really tough. You know, all I did was go to Waco, Texas, which, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, is a foreign country. <laughs> but to go to Waco, Brent Walker knows this, some of you know this, go to Waco, what you have to do is you have to fly to Dallas. You can take a little puddle jumper from there to Waco. There's no point because by the time you wait for the one flight from United that will take you there, assuming it makes it these days, and get on that flight and get to the other end and rent your car, you could have rented a car and driven down there. It's an hour and a half. It is the flattest road I've ever seen in my life. It's straight and flat. You just get on it. And you just drive. That's what you do. Pretty fast, by the way. People, you Texans drive fast. So that's what I did. And when I, when I made this journey down there, when you come back, you don't know what the road's going to be like. So you leave a little early to make sure you're going to make your flight because eventually you are on somebody else's time clock. And then you get to the airport, you make your connection, you get home, and when you get home, and my wife came to pick me up, and I went, I'd forgotten how exhausting this is. I'm tired. This is rough. But no sooner had I gotten back to my house that I had two emails. One of them was from Hilton Corporation, because I stay in a lot of Hiltons. You might know that or might not. And the other was from Delta, because that's my airline. That's where all my points, miles, etc. are. And usually I try to fly Delta. And both of them asked the same question. It was one question with five numbers, and you could check one of the numbers. How likely are you, now let me see if you get these emails to, to, either. How likely are you to tell someone else about us? How likely are you to do that? Now, I found that interesting the other night as I was preparing this sermon. It just struck me. I was in my bed and I looked at my phone. I was no, I mean, it was late at night I got back. No sooner was I back on the ground that I had these two emails from two companies asking me the same question, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend? And so maybe that's the question we in our startup need to ask. Let me ask you, I'm going to point to some stats in a little while, but how likely are you to recommend us to a friend? How likely are you to recommend Jesus to a friend? If this is a startup and we have an unbelievable, undeniably great product, in fact, it's greater than anything the world has to offer, why do we hesitate to share it? You love a restaurant, you tell people about it. You want that restaurant to be successful, to stay open. You love shampoo, you tell people about your shampoo. You tell people about whatever it is that you use. You do that because you are an influencer. Some of you put it all over social network. Some of you tell your neighbors, your friends, your family. You want people to say, I agree with you. This is a great product. But when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, too often we say, yeah, we have the answer. As long as we've got it, it's all good. It's all golden. How many neighbors have you invited to church lately? How many have you told about Jesus? How many loved ones have you shared the gospel with recently? Number four, and I'm not going to spend much time with this, but if you want to know something about it, come to the information session the elders are conducting after worship today. This one kept nailing me between the eyes. Find a co-founder. And by co-founder, I don't mean Jesus or God. 
I mean a human being who is a co-founder of your movement. I read all sorts of material about why this is necessary, why multiple voices have to be in the game, why you have to have some generational diversity, lots of kinds of diversity in your leadership core. And one thing that I've become convicted about is that in the future, both businesses and churches and organizations are going to have to be led very differently because the trust is low for a single charismatic leader who seems to get the benefit of the organization. You want to hear more about that? Did I make you curious? Let me tell you, by the way, you got an email. I'm not dying. I am not sick. I am not leaving. I am Columbia's pastor as far as, well, I am dying, but not today. As far as I know, I'm pretty healthy. Things are going well. Things are going great. I love serving Columbia. We're in great shape, but I'm not going to be the only one. And this is important. So if you want to know more about it, show up. Now, what the the COVID, post-COVID, getting out ahead of the wave thing brought me back to is a number of scriptures that have been pivotal in my life. And what jumped out to me was one that I based the first sermon I ever preached on. It is actually the foundation of our whole life discipleship model. This is a very important scripture for Columbia, but it became even more important to me when I started thinking about the unique identity of Columbia and telling the world what we have, what we are, letting people know about this and that's Luke 9. And in Luke 9, I preached it in greater depth last week and more broadly, but I want to show you two amazing things about this scripture that I'm pretty sure you don't already know unless you read my notes that I wrote for this week. So Luke 9, 23, 25, then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must, what? Deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, the ands mean there are three things that we must do. You could say this is one movement, right? But there are three parts to this movement. They must deny themselves, which we don't like to talk about. We like to skip over that part and take up our crosses, which means to die to ourselves. He adds daily. He adds daily and follow me. Because whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, if I told you I've got a product that will save your life, do you want it? The answer is, of course. In this case, this is bulletproof, foolproof. It is the gold. It is everything to us to understand that we claim in Jesus' name through his cross and his empty tomb, we claim the future, and I mean the eternal future. Let's take a look at this in more detail. What good is it for someone to gain the world and lose or forfeit their very self? What does it mean to take up our crosses daily? Now, as is so often the case, when someone is translating Scripture, I I need to say this carefully because sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, the more I hear you teach, the more I decide that the Bible's not very well done. Well, that's not true. It's just that translation is very, very hard. And the reason translation is hard, how many of you have learned another language and you've tried to translate it into English and you've discovered that it often takes many more English words to translate a passage from another language because it's not nuanced by itself, by its own language. And when you're translating from the Hebrew of the Old Testament or the Greek of the New Testament into English, one of the things you have to do is decide how can I tell this efficiently because I don't want something that looks like this. Though if you have an amplified Bible of some sort, it could be that big. I want something people can actually read and carry and use. So how can I use the, the, the least words to convey the message that this is offering? And sometimes teachings of the Bible, and especially I find teachings of Jesus, they just lose something in translation. And nowhere for me is that more true than in Luke 9, 23. And with this idea of taking up their cross daily. Now let's think about this word daily. Because Luke is the only one who uses it. It does mean, I would think, that when Jesus spoke these words, there was something of what he said that Luke wanted to capture. And Jesus was speaking Aramaic, which is a spoken form of Hebrew. He wasn't speaking Greek. And so when the gospel writers record in Greek, they're translating once already. And they're trying to think what Greek words convey what Jesus is saying. But Matthew and Mark do not include the word daily. 
I'll never forget a lecture that I once heard in seminary where a professor said Luke ruined this statement when he said daily. He said what Jesus meant by taking up his cross is absolutely to die. And he said daily adds this little simplistic nuance. And the more I looked at it in Greek, the more I decided that professor was just wrong. I don't agree. I like the fact that he includes this word, but we must understand this word. Now, this is the Greek passage that is translated, let him take up his cross daily, and it literally says, let him take up the cross of him, what? Every day. Now, there's a big difference in my book between every day and daily. I don't know about you. So there are certain things that I do daily. Debbie and I, in the summer, we love to grow some things. I wouldn't say we're enormous gardeners, but we grow a lot of peppers. We like hot things, so we grow a lot of peppers. Peppers are great to grow, by the way. You'll discover if you do it, because the bugs don't like them. They're hot, and they don't care for them. The animals don't eat them. They sometimes will pull one off. They'll leave it right on the ground. It's too hot for them. They, they, don't, they don't like the stuff you're growing, so they leave it alone. It doesn't take any insecticides or anything like that. They're pretty easy to grow. They're, they're kind of foolproof, and that's good because I'm a fool when it comes to growing stuff. Stuff. But there's certain things you have to do. These are things my wife Debbie doesn't understand. Plants do need water. They do. Some more than others. Peppers need a lot. And so one thing that I do, this is one of my jobs. You got jobs? I got jobs. One of my jobs is to go out every evening that I'm home and to water all of our plants. That's, that's my job. That's what I do. And you need to trust me in my house. If I didn't do it, they would die. You need to trust me on this. They would die. So the thing about daily is it doesn't mean I stand there all day long with a hose. That wouldn't be watering. That would be drowning. It neither means that if it rains on this particular day that I need to do my job. Sometimes I kind of like to see rain. I go, oh, this is great. I get a little extra time today. I don't have to do my job. God did it today. That's awesome. But daily means once. I go out in the evening, I water the plants, I'm done. I have some vitamins and stuff. I don't know if you take these or not. I have no idea if they do any good. I think they do, and therefore, you know, I don't know. Well, anyway, I, I take some stuff. And those things, you know, they've got a little, little instruction on them. And they say, they say take two daily. Now, that, that doesn't mean you, like, pop them all day long. Some of you might, but it's not advisable. Once a day. I mean, take them in the evening before I go to bed. That's what I do. It's daily. Daily. Daily to me, when a doctor tells me daily, when any product tells me daily, I just use it once a day. Look, you'll be pleased to know, I use deodorant. If you want to know the kind, it works for me. I'll tell you all about it because it's good product. But I don't carry it around with me. Some of you need to, by the way. But I don't carry it around with me. I wash daily. Do you? I wash daily. It's a good idea. It really is. And thank God we live in a part of the world that we can. I mean, you take it for granted. You don't realize how, how much of the world cannot. And you just need to slather that stuff under your arms once a day. You should be good to go. If you're not, change products. Change pro I don't carry it around with me, and I'm talking to somebody. I go, hold on a second. I, you know, I don't do that. Daily, once. This is not what Jesus said. He said every single day. The first battle of every day is to whom you will submit and what you will submit. The first battle of every day for me, and I don't win it every single day, to be honest with you. The first battle of every day is to try to win the battle of submitting my time, my talent, and my treasure to my God. If you win that battle, you will win the war. But it is an everyday battle. Have you found this to be true? Discipleship's not something you do. I, I did it last week. I'm good to go. I did it on Sunday. I'm good to go. Discipleship is an every moment of everyday conscious process. It's discipline. Every day. Now, what makes this even more meaningful is that the word is translated every day is the word himeron, and himeron means the period of the day between sunrise and sunset. You don't know that reading your English. That's intriguing. This isn't a 24-hour day. It is your waking conscious hours, your disciplined hours. I, 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 
I can't control what I dream. Can you? I do think what I do in my waking hours shapes what I dream. But in reality, sometimes I have dreams I would prefer not to have, and sometimes I have ones that I can't figure out, and sometimes I have ones that some of you are in that are just plain nuts and kooky. But when I am awake, I can determine what I am thinking about. I can determine what my habits are and what I am doing. Now, this kind of sacred day is captured all through Scripture. Nowhere more beautifully than in Psalm 113.3, where the psalmist says, this is the King James Version, from the rising of the sun until the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. That means when I can consciously decide to praise the Lord, I'm going to do it every hour of every day, every minute of every hour, every second of every minute. This is what I'm going to do with my life. Now, do you see the difference between how we read that Scripture and what Jesus was saying? He's saying that you got to be all in all the time, that you consciously decide, I will follow Jesus and I will live out His virtues in this moment. Now, that brings me to this set of core values that God, I believe, gave to me and has worked with some leaders in our congregation to shape about being all new or following Jesus, Luke 9, 23, being all in or taking up our cross daily and being all out or denying ourselves. And I started last week with all new because that's the basis or foundation of it all for me. So quickly, let me deal with all in and all out. So there are some summary statements under each of these, and I could care less if you remember these statements as long as you understand what they mean. I want you to remember all new, all in, and all out. Let's see if you remember that. Try it. That, sound, that sounds so good, but I want you to say it with enthusiasm. Like I said last week, when I wake you up in the middle of the night after you ask why I'm doing, that might be a dream, and you go, I'm all new, I'm all in, I'm all out. Okay, so here it is, all in. We're all in to reach people with the gospel of Jesus and welcome them into the church. We're all in to share this answer we have. What is the world missing? The world is missing Jesus. Let me give you two snapshots again. Last week I gave you two from hundreds of statistics I could have used. Lifeway Research conducted the largest uh, survey of its type this past year to ask what is happening with evangelism, what we call evangelism, or sharing Jesus in the church. They have a lot of stats that come out of that. These are two of the ones I found interesting. Fewer than 40% of active Christians in North America, or in the United States actually, have ever shared Christ verbally. Fewer than 40% of Christians of all ages in the United States of America today have ever, ever verbally shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. I find that remarkable. My goodness, if you are a distinctive follower of Jesus Christ, a committed follower of Jesus, you'll wind up sharing that story by accident half the time just because you're talking to somebody about something and it leads to that. Ever. Wow. You wonder why we're not reaching the next generation? Huh. How somebody's supposed to know unless we tell them about it? The second one is even more interesting. Less than 30% have ever spoken with a casual acquaintance about Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is when they looked at people speaking with their family and friends. This is intriguing. Only 34% of people have ever invited someone they didn't know well to church. And only 40-some percent, low 40s, have ever invited a family member to church. Imagine. I don't even love someone in my own family enough to go, hey, let me take you to a place where the answer to the world's biggest problems can be found. There's so many more stats I could lay at your doorstep, but this is really simple. What Lifeway concluded was, in all the years we have been surveying, in all the years we have surveyed, evangelism or telling people about Jesus in the local church is at an all-time low. What, are we embarrassed? Are we afraid of it? What, what, what is the deal? Maybe we're just really happy that we found it, and eh, that's all that matters. When's the last time, or have you ever, told someone about the gospel of Jesus? 
You know, the problem's the same as it was when Jesus planted the church. When he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 9, we're told, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Listen, the harvest has never been more plentiful. There are more people in this area and more people in this nation than there ever have been before. And there are more unbelievers around us than there ever have been before. There are more people that don't know anything about Jesus or the church or the Bible than there have ever been before. It's a brand new story for them. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You know what? This was a trick that Jesus played on the disciples because if you pray about that, you know what God's going to say, right? They say, Lord, send more workers into the harvest. What's God going to say? Get moving. You are one of the workers. If you care to pray about this, then you're going to actually pray to do it. All in, all in, all in. We are all in for spending ourselves in God's recreation of a broken world. Now, you know, I think, if you're part of Columbia, that spend yourself is our development process of lifting communities out of extreme poverty. It is a magnificent ministry. It's fantastic. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it today because Brother Greg Lower is going to preach on this next Sunday while I'm preaching at a former church for their 100th anniversary. Greg's going to inspire you so much that you will empty your wallets completely when he is done. Greg is going to poet you to death next week. You're going to get so much great poetry about spending yourself, you won't know what to do with yourself. Be sure you show up. But Spend yourself is based on Isaiah 58.10. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night uh, will be like the noonday. All in, all in, all in. We are all in to care for one another deeply and authentically. If someone asks me, what do you love about Columbia? I can promise you the first thing I will tell them, I wonder if you feel the same way, is that the people I serve are real. The people I know there are real. They're authentic. Authentic community's always been one of our values. They're, they're the genuine article. They struggle and they tell you they do. They sometimes doubt and they tell you they do. They sometimes don't understand what it all means and they tell you they do. And they sometimes get big answers and they tell you they do. And God accomplishes great things in their lives and they tell you about it. And when their families are struggling and broken, they tell you so. And I hear over and over again from people, what I love about my small group, my ignition group, is that the people in there are real. People are looking for Christians who are real. They don't want all this fakery. They don't want all of this pretty on the outside, busted on the inside stuff. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, in the message, the Apostle Paul says, love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Really love. Many other translations say, let love be genuine or let love be authentic. I love how people love each other here and accept each other, flaws and all. You want to know why I love that? You're looking at the most flawed person in the entire church. Right here. If you don't accept each other, flaws and all, I'm in big, big trouble. Let's look again at Luke, because before we get to the next one, we've got to ask what deny themselves means. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Deny themselves. I wish, if I wrote a translation, I'm going to write this, get over themselves. Take up their cross and, and follow me. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word or the Greek words that are rendered this way are anastasto huton, which means to refuse or to disown. In this case, the word disown is the right one. I disown me. I'm over me. I'm over myself. That's what it means. We live in a world where everybody's all about themselves. Do you agree? What does it mean if people can actually get over themselves and become who God tells them that they are? I love the song we sang today. It's perfect for today because it's, it's right up that alley. Well, let's talk about what it means to be all out. Now, let me be honest with you. When I have dealt with other leaders in the church, this is the section they've struggled with the most. So they've said something that sounds like this. You know, do we really need to say what we're not? 
Is that really necessary? Can't we just say who we are and let the chips fall where they may? And here's the thing is I'm all about that presentation and these values are presented in that way. They start with the positive value. But some things we've been able to take for granted in the past, we cannot take for granted now. You need to understand that the perception of the church of Jesus Christ in North America is being shaped by a number of elements outside of our immediate control. And in many cases, we're talking about churches where people want to go and have their particular set of values, be they racial, have they to do with politics, have they to do with wealth, whatever the case, they want somebody just to tell them, you're exactly right, exactly like you are. You don't have to change a thing. I wonder if we ever worry that that might not not be quite consistent with the gospel. Jesus never spoke like that, ever. Not one time did Jesus say, you're exactly right the way you are. Even with sinners who he accepted most easily, he would say, now go and sin no more. Change your life. Go and be transformed. That's what Jesus said. So we need in this day and time to say clearly to people, there are some things that we deny We are over ourselves in a couple of ways. Let's start with this one. We find our identities in Christ and not in the world. What does it mean to be identified as a child of God? The I am tells me who I am. That's such a great song for today. I'm like, I didn't even ask them to sing that. That's awesome. That's Holy Spirit stuff. I am who the I am says I am. The world's going to offer you lots of options about who you can be, ways you can identify, tribes you can belong to. Those things shift and move constantly. They never change. If you want to be someone who's blown by the wind, you will be as bound as anyone can possibly be. To be free is to be anchored to Jesus Christ and therefore to know who I am because he tells me who I am. You are my child. You are dearly and deeply loved and I have a plan for your life. That's the essence of what the Bible teaches us. God is for us, but He's for us as He created us to be. In 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17, in the message, we hear John, the apostle, say, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on its way out. You can't prove it by the world right now, can you? But the Bible tells me it's so. You can't prove it by what you see around you today, but God tells me it's so. Wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. It will not be a part of the new heaven and the new earth, but whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. We have to be all out of allowing the world to tell us who we are. The Father must tell us who we are. Second, we love people and stay out of judging those who are far from God. I struggle a little bit with the far from God language, but I don't know how else to say it. And basically, what the Bible teaches us is that with regard to sin, we are to be very discerning within the church, but we are to reserve judgment outside of the body of Christ. After all, these are people who don't know Jesus. They haven't been recreated, etc. We reserve our judgment there. But what is the church doing today? You tell me. That thing has been completely reversed, turned upside down in what I believe to be a satanic way. I'm supposed to tell you you're fine just the way you are. Boy, you look good. You're awesome. You're amazing. Whatever you think, yep, that's right. However you want to vote, yep, that's right. Whatever you want to do, yep, that's right. You are fine just like you are. Now, what what I can tell you is you are loved just like you are by us and by God. But the gospel message is that there's a transformation awaiting each of us on the other side of the empty tomb, the cross and the empty tomb. So when we look at this, we love people and stay away from judging those who are far from God. What we're saying is we will reserve our discernment for inside the church. We will point fingers at ourselves and say when we are part of the problem, when we need for God to keep working in our lives, when we need to be repaired from our brokenness, when we need to be healed, and when we look outside, we will look with eyes of love because it's not in our 
our job description to judge the world. This is good news. That's in God's job description, and he does it so well, you don't need to worry about it. Isn't that great news? I believe that the reason, primarily, that so many people are running away from the church today is because they feel judged. If you're not like me, you're not loved. You're not worthy. That's got to be changed. Some church has to get it right. Some church has to say, we love you just like you are. And we'll let Jesus do the changing, right? He'll take care of that. The Holy Spirit will take care of the transformation. All we need to do is demonstrate the value of the new life that is in Christ. So we love people instead of judging those who are far from God. Now, this is what makes me saddest. Unfortunately, when I talk about how leadership has been devalued in this culture, a lot of the blame falls at the feet of Christians. And a lot of it falls at the feet of pastors. I feel like I can't pick up the paper today without reading about one more pastor who has violated the trust of people. I can't say that I've been perfect the whole time, but man, God's done miracles in my life to to make me faithful to the congregation and to my family and to Him, right? I mean, we've got a lot to atone for when it comes to the church. I I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I know for a fact because I've talked to some of you, there are people sitting in here who have been deeply damaged by the church, churches that used them, churches that wounded them badly. We've got to atone for that. At the end of the day, what happens is that judgment becomes hypocrisy if we do not live up to the standards that we are asking the world around us to abide by. If we ourselves do not live up to those judgments, the judgment becomes hypocrisy. Jesus said it this way. He was talking to the Pharisees, but a lot of Christians today I think would qualify. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. The worst thing I can imagine is that the church I pastor would be called a whitewashed tomb. Worse yet, that my life would be called a whitewashed tomb. We've got to love people. And that is where we ultimately go. We exist for the benefit of others. Would you just say that with me so we can hear ourselves say it? We exist for the benefit of others. It's huge. Jesus was the man for others. The church is the organization for others. Most churches look like they exist to make their members comfortable and to help them maintain their way of life. Most churches look to me a lot like they exist for the people who belong to them. The Bible teaches us about the church Jesus established, and it exists for the well-being of others. The church is at its best, not when it is defending itself, but when it is defending others. That's what the church does best. That's what makes the church the church of Jesus Christ. So we exist for the benefit of others, and therefore we stay out of political and worldly quests for power. This is huge. It's a big deal. Now, let me be clear. I know you have political opinions. I've heard some of them. I know that you have political ideals. I've heard them. I get them. I've had so many political conversations in Washington my head's still spinning. I mean, this is the political place on all the, of all the world. This is where you are. It's a political place. There's no way you're going to get through a day without having a political conversation. That is fascinating, isn't it, that we as Christians could not get through the day without having a political conversation, but we could get through weeks and months without talking about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? What drives us? What's really important to us? I know you have opinions, and I want you to be politically engaged. And for God's sake, when Election Day comes, I want you to be there, and I want you to vote. I want you to have opinions, and I I want you to stand by those opinions. But that is not what the church of Jesus Christ is about, and I refuse. I absolutely refuse to make us a political force.
Because when we take up the political baton, we become for ourselves rather than for others. That's, it's that simple. When we become a political party, we cease to be a church. The church of Jesus Christ is not about politics. The members of the church can be engaged all they want. The church itself needs to stay away from that game. And what's happening today is that people around us perceive that that's all we want is power. And the more we get in the minority, and that's going to happen in the near future, the more desperate we seem to become to hold on to it. I care nothing about power, except for the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to heal a broken world. I care nothing about it, nothing. I cared about it when I was younger, and I came to realize it doesn't solve anything. Nothing changes. Have you noticed? It only gets worse. Nothing really changes. Because it is the human heart that is broken, and therefore we create broken systems. I do not put my faith in politics or politicians. Hard for me to say here. I live in Washington, D.C., but true. I put my faith in the master, the Lord of the universe. That's where I put my faith. We exist for the benefit of others. We stay out of political and worldly quest for power. Paul said, our citizenship, plain and simple, is in heaven. Therefore, we are Christians who happen to be Americans, not Americans who are therefore Christians. We are Christians who happen to be Americans, not Americans who therefore happen to be Christian. No. Don't put the cart before the horse. Now listen, I recognize not everybody wants a church like this. The fastest way today to build a church quickly is to go tribal. It is to choose a side and speak only a word from that side. It is to affirm what people walk in the door having been discipled by news channels and social media and all sorts of things and just to say, whatever you're hearing there, it's right. It's to spend your whole sermon like you are a political commentator just offering a harangue about everybody else out there. That's the fastest way to grow a church but it's not what Jesus asked us to do. Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that gate. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to reach as many people as we possibly can. We need to be baptizing thousands of people because there are a lot of people looking for a church like I just described. But please understand when I tell you this may not be for everyone, and that's okay. I don't want a church that brings in a lot of people. I want to be a part of a church that leads people to eternal, everlasting life. Amen? I want to be a a Jesus church. It's been an awesome weekend. That's our property, Google Maps. You can see they're a little behind on our building process, thank God. Although, although man, I, I feel like it's taken a long time to get there. Jesus told us to go and make disciples. That's what he asked us to do, and he told us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily and follow him. And the deacon retreat this weekend, I said, hey, let's do something fun. Uh, you know, there's the property, and so let's, did you guys cross over a chalk line today? Do you think there'd been a crime scene here? Well, there was. It was the deacons. And um, yesterday I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to draw a circle around this, this property, this new complex, and we're going to pray that God would lead us into the fields that are white with harvest, that He would use us in a powerful way. And I couldn't quite figure out how to do it at first, but finally I figured it out. There were 14 teams and 14 positions, and each one of them drew a line from theirs to the next when the next line began. And if you were here, it was amazing because it takes everyone, right? If everyone draws their line right, we get a circle of prayer around the church. And when you finished, you had one complete loop. Now, the hard thing about this was I had to be in Mission Central. So I was on Zoom on my computer in Stevenson Hall while they all walked around with, with their phones on Zoom. is a little chaotic, but it worked really well. And they were drawing these chalk lines around the church. And so uh, when they were out there doing this, right, praying, 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 praying all around the church, drawing this line of prayer around the church, when they were out there doing this and having all kinds of fun, I was in there trying to figure out what in the world was going on out there. But it was amazing even to watch them on Zoom. 
It was just absolutely incredible to see what they were doing. Our deacons, some of our elders, some of you came and joined them because we invited you to come if you wanted to. And when they finished, they had this, this thing all around the church. Because I was in Mission Central and I, I missed the opportunity when they were all gone, when everybody was gone but, but me. I walked out to go to my car and I saw that line and I hadn't even planned to do it. This is interesting. I, I should have, but I hadn't. I got to tell you the truth. And I, I saw that line and I just started walking that line around the church and praying and crying because I could see what God was doing there. It's an emotional experience to walk this line. My brothers and sisters had drawn around this new facility and to pray that God would fill it with people who need to know the love of Jesus Christ. It was just this powerful moment. And in my mind, I could picture that they were there with me, even though I was alone. As I walked that circle, I could picture them. Now, if I wanted to start up something, if I wanted to start up a church, I couldn't do better than these people right here, at least most of them. No, all of them. Look at these pictures. Look at these people. Look at this young couple I married who committed their life to Christ and want nothing more than to reach everybody around them for Jesus. Just look at them. The leaders they are, the amazing people they are. Look at this future generation. Look at Henry draw his line sideways. That's so smart. That was the best line in the whole thing. Everybody else did the front. He did side. I understand it chewed up a lot of chalk, but man, what a line. I want that kid in my church right there. I want to start up with that kid right there. And look, look at these people. One of them is my chair of elders. The other one is an elder too, a Native American, an African American a member of my staff team who's just brilliant, amazing, and her child. Look at that team of people. Look at them. Look at this picture. This picture made me cry. This is a young single woman in our church praying with a great, fantastic mother of boys who lives close to me and a child in our church, and they're sitting in a circle. Look at them praying. I looked at this picture and I said, Lord, if I start something up, that's who I want right there. I want those people. And what you need to understand is that God put you here because this is our moment. And if we're a startup, then look around. You can't do better than these people. You can't do better than these hearts. You just can't do better, man. It just made me weep to make that circle around the church. This is a moment to commit. God's got some amazing things He wants to do, but we have to be all new, all in, and all out to get it done. You go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. We'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.